This episode is being released on November 9th, 2021, which means it's publication day for my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. It's a book that I've worked on for the last several years, and I'm so excited for you to check it out. In the process of writing it, I corresponded with psychopaths. I sipped wine with the daughter of a cannibalistic dictator in Paris. I had breakfast with a yogurt kingpin in Madagascar. And I explored why so many petty tyrants dominate our communities. From middle managers to the despots who so often rule over homeowners associations like it's their personal fiefdom. It was the most interesting thing that I've ever worked on in my life. So I hope you'll give it a go. And if you do buy Corruptible, you can go to my website, brianpkloss.com, click on Corruptible in the top right corner, fill out the short form there, and I'll send you a private link to a bonus episode of Power Corrupts, an episode that's exclusively available to those who support the show. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's imagine that, heaven forbid, one day you come home and your car has been stolen, straight out of your driveway. A few years later, you're on holiday in another state, another region of your country. And all of a sudden, there it is, right in front of you, your car hiding in plain sight. It's just sitting there, with your old license plate, leaving no doubt as to who originally owned it or where it came from. You contact the police, but they just sort of shrug and tell you that the theft is now old news. And since it happened in another jurisdiction, it's not their problem. It's been years and years since the theft, they say. Let sleeping dogs lie. You sit with this answer for a few weeks, incensed that the authorities are doing nothing whatsoever to return your stolen car. Finally, you decide to take matters into your own hands. In the dead of night, you sneak up to the car, pick the lock, hotwire the ignition, and drive off. Back home to the empty parking space in your garage that it used to occupy. It's back in its rightful spot, right back where it started. Here's the question. Did you commit a crime in reclaiming your own stolen property? Or were you justified in taking it back, regardless of how you went about doing it? In today's episode, we're going to ask that same question. Except, instead of a car, we're going to be looking into the world of antiquities and artifacts of cultural heritage. The stolen loot that drives a huge illicit trafficking market in the criminal underworld, but also that populates some of the world's most famous museums in rich countries. Who's stealing this loot? And when priceless artifacts get stolen, are you allowed to just steal it back? In the mid-1800s, China was a lucrative market for British opium, a drug derived from the opium poppy. 
British traders would sell opium into China, raking in plenty of money in the process. But the Chinese authorities from the ruling Qing dynasty started to worry about the social problems the opium trade was creating. So they tried to crack down on the opium trade. The British saw this as an affront to their economic interests, and it eventually led to the First and Second Opium Wars, struggles that seem bizarre by today's standards. After all, Britain was going to war to secure its right to import illicit drugs into China. In 1860, during the Second Opium War, a joint delegation of British and French troops were dispatched with the goal of negotiating the surrender of the Qing dynasty. But word soon emerged. There would be no peace. In fact, the delegation had been taken hostage and tortured. Twenty people were reportedly killed. In retaliation, British troops began to destroy the ornate Summer Palace, a key symbol of China's political and cultural power. The palace was enormous, about eight times larger than the entirety of Vatican City, spread across nearly 900 acres of land. There were three picturesque gardens, and the grounds were dotted with priceless examples of China's cultural heritage, artwork that spanned the previous dynasties, and showed off the rich artistry of China's past. And here, to help us understand the scale of destruction, is Alex Palmer. My name is Alex Palmer. I'm a writer based in D.C. Truly, you know, the looting of the Summer Palace in 1860 was, even by the standards of imperial conduct, pretty bad, that they had 4,500 troops here after the Second Opium War. And this palace, it was so big and so beautiful, so ornate. It took those 4,500 troops three days to burn everything. One of the central artistic creations in the Summer Palace were the so-called Zodiac Heads, bronze statues of the signs of the Chinese Zodiac. They were incredibly impressive and would spout water out at regular intervals to tell the time. In short, they were masterpieces. The Zodiac Heads were part of a fountain. They wrenched them off uh, and took them back. They truly stole everything they could grab and anything they couldn't hold, they just burned. Three days of fires and much of the palace was destroyed, its ruins left to smolder. And lest there be any ambiguity over whether this was perceived as a victory to be celebrated or not, well, let's put it this way, there wasn't much debate. Queen Victoria received the first Pekingese dog in European history from this, and she named it Ludi. That there was very little shame about what was happening. It's a detail that you can't really forget. After looting China's cultural heritage, the queen got a Chinese breed of dog that she named Luti to celebrate the destruction and theft of that heritage. On the brazenness scale, we're off the charts here. But while such egregious details have largely been lost to modern times and are little more than bizarre footnotes in British history, the destruction of the Summer Palace has certainly not been forgotten in China. This is a very real narrative in Chinese education, in, in Chinese history, like if you go to the former grounds of the Summer Palace, it's left burned. They didn't try to remake it. And the point is that it's burned. The point is that it's destroyed, that you are supposed to feel a sort of humiliation and longing for what China once had. And this is very much drilled into kids. It's part of the patriarchal education. So there is a real sense of loss. For a bit more than 100 years since the onset of the First Opium War, China was repeatedly invaded, its cultural artifacts plundered, its society in upheaval. And during that upheaval, art and cultural objects were a secondary concern. Even when the Chinese Communist Party came to power, 
art was viewed as disposable, even undesirable. The start of this century of humiliation, which is so important to the CCP's narrative. So from then, basically until 1949, you have foreign armies invading, you have chaos in the streets, the country's being plundered. So they really only start caring about this stuff after the CCP has come to power in 1949, and then even only after you know the Cultural Revolution, these other upheavals domestically. During those periods, they saw art as sort of this bourgeois extravagance, and they couldn't get rid of it fast enough. But as China began its geopolitical rise, as it became a major player in global affairs, the government started to think more about the loss of its heritage. They began to start thinking about those missing objects, taken abroad by foreign soldiers to later be admired in faraway museums. Once China became more powerful, richer around the turn of the century, art became the symbol of something that was lost in Chinese heritage and something that they could gain back to show the legitimacy of the CCP in restoring China to power. And here's the thing. We're not just talking about a handful of items, a few zodiac heads here, a few ornate cups there. The scale of the thefts is breathtaking. There are varying estimates, some more believable than others, but one widely cited government estimate puts more than 10 million antiquities stolen or disappeared from China since 1840. 10 million is probably a conservative estimate. I had seen one that put 50 million antiquities lost to Britain alone. So the number changes depending on what they needed to say, but there's a lot. 10 to 15 million is indeed a lot. And if you fast forward 150 years from the burning of the Summer Palace to 2010, the Chinese Communist Party decided to make the return of these cultural heirlooms central to its narrative of restoring China to its former greatness as a major player on the international stage. This was a real moment in Chinese culture and politics. You know, it was this big ceremony broadcast on TV, and you had stars, including Jackie Chan, signing this pledge saying, we will do everything we can to bring back this art that... This is very much a a live issue. So the fact that China has made it such a, the CCP has made it such a point of their legitimacy, just a visible sign of it, like we will bring all this stuff back to China that was lost, they have to take more active measures, I think. This is all important context for our story, which moves for the moment away from China and over to Sweden. That was one of the most spectacular. Stockholm, Sweden, August 6th, 2010, 2 a.m., a call comes into the police. Reports of fires burning on the outskirts of the city. Cars are ablaze. It seems that arsonists have struck. As squad cars from the police race out to the edge of their jurisdiction across town, their sirens blaring, an alarm goes off on the other side of the city. This time, it's not a car alarm or a fire, but rather it's a break-in at the Chinese pavilion, part of a Swedish royal compound that displays rare Chinese art dating back to the 1750s. The thieves are in and out in six minutes. They've stolen what they came for, a sculpture in green soapstone, a red lacquered chalice with a lid, a chalice carved from a rhinoceros horn, a small blackened bronze teapot, and a plate made out of muskwood. And once they've grabbed those items, they escape into the night, climbing onto mopeds that they've stashed right outside the Chinese pavilion. All while the cops are across town tending to burning cars that their accomplices had set on fire as a distraction. They take mopeds to a lake, ditch the mopeds, and escape on speedboat with exactly what they wanted. This was no amateur operation. Into the museum, out of the museum, onto mopeds, then disappearing out into the dark water off the coast on a speedboat 
all in the span of a few minutes. Haven't been caught to this day. The art is still missing. Nobody knows who took it or where it went. But then, a month later, something astonishingly similar happened a few hundred miles away, in Bergen, Norway, at the Kode Museum. There was this sort of theme of starting car fires just outside the city's edges so that police would have to respond to them. You know, this is the amazing thing about Kode. Bergen is a pretty small little city. The Kode Museum is right on the central square. And when I was there to do interviews and to check things out, to walk from the Kode to the police station is like three minutes. You know, it's right next to it. After luring police cars away from the area, well, that's when thieves struck again. They were in and out, this time with an even more sophisticated operation. I mean, you had truly cinematic stuff, like repelling from a glass ceiling. The Kode also has this glass wall, so they broke into the building next to it, chiseled their way through the glass wall, stole what they wanted. They took 56 items, all of them Chinese artifacts, and they too got away. Then, thieves struck in the UK at museums in Durham and Cambridge. Then another break-in at the same museum in Bergen. The thieves went back for 22 more items that they had previously missed. All these places they hit, some of them are more obscure than others. Like, I don't think anyone had really, in the U.S. at least, or in most of Europe, had heard of the Kode Museum in Bergen, Norway, until this. And it got hit twice. Evidently, they missed something on the first go-around. Art heists happen. There's something that every museum fears. One of the art detectives I talked to said, you know, a museum is like a bank where you can touch the money. So you also have this real, the point is of a museum is to be accessible and for people to be able to see the things. But that also means that you can have people go stake it out, put together sort of a shopping list, you know, their websites to list exactly what they have and where it's stored. So it's a real tension between wanting to show off these objects, but then attracting attention in the wrong way. But smaller museums in Norway and Sweden typically don't need to worry that much about heists, at least compared to, say, the British Museum or the Louvre. And typically, when art heists take place, it's only the most expensive items that disappear. There's no reference to time period or country of origin. The thieves just take what's going to net the biggest profit. But these cases were different. They seem to be working off a shopping list when they were hitting these places. And this is something that police pointed out as well, that they had left more valuable items that were not of Chinese provenance or that were not connected to the looting of China. And they were in and out so quickly. Some of these were took just two minutes. They had a very clear sense of what they wanted. It seemed like basically someone was ordering from a shopping list. You know, I want this, this, and this. And the thieves would go in and take it. They would disregard everything else. That was pretty interesting. In 2013, thieves hit the Chinese collection at Fontainebleau, a massive palace with 1,500 rooms a bit outside of Paris. The Chinese museum on the palace grounds was founded by the wife of Napoleon III, stocked with various treasures looted from China by the French. And again, the level of sophistication was impressive. The Chateau de Fontainebleau in just outside of Paris, that has hundreds of rooms, but they knew exactly where they were going smashed in, were in and out in, I think, five minutes, and it sprayed a fire extinguisher behind them to cover up their prints, cover up their tracks. We think tried to remove any traces of DNA. So the people who were doing these jobs were clearly not amateurs. They knew what they were doing, and they had done this before. Whether it's the same people who were doing it across 
different jobs. We don't know, but certainly they were at least learning from each other. There's some reason to believe that the same crews weren't working every job. That's because a few of these heists were comically botched. The level of sophistication varied a bit. The market got very frothy there for a couple of years, and you saw people trying more sort of ham-fisted efforts. Like there was one instance in the UK, I think it was at the Fitzwilliam at Cambridge, where they broke in and then had stolen a few items and buried them in a field and then forgot where they were. And people caught them because the next day they were like walking around this field, kicking the ground, talking on their cell phones, not able to find it. There's another instance where people tried to steal a rhino head while a museum was open. They just wrenched it off the wall and tried to run straight out and someone tripped them. Those were sort of a little more comical. So some of the details were similar. Others varied across the heists. But there was one pattern that seemed to stand out particularly to Alex as he researched these heists for an article he wrote for GQ in 2018. There seems to be a strange pattern of visits by Chinese government employees or by very wealthy Chinese entrepreneurs to places and thefts of items from those museums. It was almost like there were people who seemed to be scoping out a museum collection and drawing up that shopping list one that could be used to pick up certain items a bit later. Though, of course, it's also possible that people were just freelancing, rather than being directed to go through the shopping list at these museums. What people would point out to me is China barely needs sort of a masterminded theft campaign. There is enough money sloshing around that if you have someone point out even obliquely, oh, I like this piece, someone will steal it for them because they know they'll get a reward. There's plenty of reason to believe that this was an organized campaign by some very powerful actors in China, probably with links to the Chinese state. But we can't be sure. In fact, we can't even be sure if we know about all the heists that have happened. There may well have been more, and they've just been covered up. Just the fact that it was happening with such regularity for a while, really around 2010, you had Sweden, Norway, France, various uh, museums across England, Norway again. And then this is only really a fraction of probably the real thefts. As I briefly mentioned in the article, a lot of the time museums don't want to publicize, you know, hey, we had stuff stolen. We have bad security. Come check us out. So why hasn't anyone been caught? Why hasn't any of this stolen back loot been tracked down? Well, there are a few reasons. First of all, it's not easy to track across borders. There's such a well-developed mechanism at this point for international art theft and for moving these items across borders easily and without notice. You know, this is why art theft, by some estimates, is one of the largest international crimes right after, you know, trafficking of people, arms and drugs is because it falls prey to the system where all police is national and all the crime is international. So as soon as something, for instance, gets stolen from Norway and is moving beyond its borders, the police in Norway have real really have no jurisdiction whatsoever and no power, even if they find something in China or they get a lead on something in China, as they did in one instance. So there's just a very little way to combat it. When people know that they can get money for it, or when they know they'll be rewarded in other ways, whoever is doing the ordering, it's very easy if you have experts in these break-ins to find a way to do it. Then you've got another problem. Even if you catch the thieves, they don't know who actually hired them. And on top of that, Which beat cop is going to recognize some Chinese vase as one that was stolen, as opposed to just a random antique that you found in your grandma's closet? The people carrying it out are hired muscle. 
and this is part of the beauty of international art theft, is that there are so many specialized layers between the person who orders and the person who does the job, you know, in terms of fences who are going to sell the stuff back, middlemen who are going to do the transportation, local muscle, that really, even when they did catch some people on one of the Cote jobs, they had no idea who ordered this or what. They were just told to steal the stuff and put it on a ship. That's all they knew or all they would say they knew. So, you know, you can find somebody to break in for you. In Europe, especially, there's a pretty good well-established market for this and for moving things internationally through shipping containers, you know, through vehicles, or even just, you know, in one instance in the UK, someone was moving stuff just in their luggage. And this was something that police had talked to me about is, even if you have your average policeman who, let's say, catches a truck and opens up the back and sees a bunch of priceless antiquities, to them, it might just look like bunch of old stuff that their grandma would have at their house. There's very little way to know for priceless individual objects like, oh, this is something I need to keep an eye out for. So that's, again, what makes it such a tough business to crack. The Chinese government, for its part, has rejected claims that it has anything to do with these heists, though there is a suspicious pattern that suggests some form of high-level organization. Maybe they just got fed up with official complaints and decided to take action. Oh, we're not just going to sit back and wait for this stuff anymore. This is ours, and we're going to take it back. Whoever's behind these thefts, there are other efforts, and not just heists, to return back stolen items. In this case, simply by buying them. So this was, I think, one of the most charismatic of the billionaires uh, in China. Former taxi driver turned billionaire. He had bought this chicken cup, which is this tiny little sort of, we would think of it as like a little teacup that had been used by one of the last emperors, allegedly. And he bought it at auction for $36 million and he paid for it by swiping his Amex card 24 times and then instantly caused a sensation because he drank from it right there instead of, you know, holding it very delicately and putting it in a case. Then I think very soon after he spent $45 million on a Ming tapestry. So he has made clear that part of the point of this is to bring back things that were taken. This gets at another central question for this story. Who should own this stuff? Museums? China's government? Private collectors? Whoever buys or sells them? China's citizens? That's a thorny question that pervades everything about the antiquities debate. Who should be able to control items that connect us with our heritage and our past? And does it matter whether they were looted hundreds of years ago or more recently? Today, we would call those war crimes. And I don't think anyone really begrudges China for wanting this stuff back. This is part of a bigger international movement, Greece wanting the marbles back, you know, Nigeria, Thailand, other countries that were looted by imperial forces wanting their art back. I do think that's going to be a turn we're going to keep seeing for the next couple of decades. And China is just the biggest and most powerful example of it. I certainly, during the reporting, came to understand much better why there is such a emotional sense of wrong around these art pieces that uh, were stolen and now are being returned. And I hope at least people who read the piece and who listen to this will have some sympathy of, or at least some uh, mixed emotions about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy here. Because I don't think it's clear either. And that's part of what interested me about the story is that it's complex. We're going to talk about these broader debates in a second with reference to antiquities in the Middle East and India. But in this specific story, the story about the Chinese art heists, there's another tantalizing little wrinkle. 
Many of the arguments put forward by Western governments and museums as to why they should hold on to these artifacts revolves around a claim of safety and security. We'd give them back, they say, but our societies are more stable and more secure. Let us keep them safe for you until you're ready to have them back. These Chinese heists, well, they flipped that narrative. Some of the art experts I talked to, they thought maybe the thefts had the second motive of showing that proving the European museum's wrong, because that's still the argument they'll make is, oh, you know, we can show this to the world, we can protect it, we can keep it safe. And if their stuff is getting stolen all the time, it's pretty hard to make that argument that actually we're keeping it safe. So in addition to getting things back, maybe that was sort of a second motivation of, uh, I don't know, you're not doing such a good job. That is a good point, yeah. Aside from right and wrong, there remains a lingering mystery. Where did all that artwork go after it was stolen from these museums? And the answer, at least for now, is that we don't know. When we were writing the story, sort of the ultimate closing scene that we wanted was, I meet some Chinese billionaire and he invites me to his home and takes me down into this basement, hands me like a tumbler of whiskey and shows me all the art that he said stolen. Obviously that's not quite how it happened. Okay, so first thing, can you introduce your your name and your title? My name is Katie Paul, and I'm the co-director of the Athar Project, which is the Antiquities Trafficking and Heritage Anthropology Research Project. And that also is an Arabic word, correct? Yes, Athar is the Arabic word for antiquities. Katie works on tracking and trying to block the illicit trade of antiquities, particularly online on sites like Facebook. And she's certainly got her work cut out for her. It's a big business. In terms of money, there are a lot of estimates, many of them not really backed up by much. There's this one that gets thrown around that it's a $5 billion illicit market globally. But really, the answer is we don't know because there's no actual measure of the licit market in antiquities. And so it's virtually impossible to gather the value of the illicit market. But when you look at individual seizures, for instance, we can get an idea of the scale. There was a very famous antiquities trafficker named Shubash Kapoor. Many pieces in New York that have been sold in galleries on Fifth Avenue have been seized. And he worked all over the world and had storage facilities all over the world. And just in New York City, this one trafficker was responsible for over $150 million worth of trafficked artifacts. So if you can extrapolate that by the number of countries, some of the regions that we know have very popular antiquities, like places like Egypt, the number is is much higher globally. But unfortunately, just the nature of tracking a market that is at times black, gray, and legal, it makes it virtually impossible to gather a number. I wanted to get a sense, who's actually behind this? Are we talking about criminal gangs or opportunistic looters? Or something else. So of course you have the individuals who have been engaging in trafficking for a long time. For instance, in Egypt after the revolution, there were mafia groups that began looting. They were already organized, well-armed, and it made it easy for them to go to sites. In Iraq, you see warlords and militia groups doing the same thing. But 
in these areas of conflict, you also have the layperson who these are often referred to as subsistence looters. They're not someone that's going to be doing this in, in an organized manner, but maybe they find something valuable in their backyard and they want to either feed their children or get out of the country to safety. And so they're looking for ways to sell that material to do so. I think it's fair to say that most people in those circumstances would do the same thing. Unfortunately, the problem is that as a result of this, they are exploited by those mafia groups, those warlords, and in some cases, terrorist groups who ultimately either extort them or pay them very little for this material and at the same time put them at risk. So we're dealing with a lot of different actors, but the one commonality with all of them is that this material is not staying in the Middle East. It's going West. And the Western market is driving this demand and continuing to drive the demand even after these conflicts. In the process, a lot of this stuff isn't just stolen and then sold. It's also broken and destroyed. Looting and trafficking is an incredibly destructive process. So when we talk about mosaics that are seen in the ground, for instance, a lot of times someone takes a pickaxe or a bulldozer and goes right through them because they believe there's a tomb underneath. They may try to sell mosaics after, but this is an incredibly destructive process. And so you don't just have the loss of material from the public historical record. You have the loss of the material physically because it's being destroyed. Let's imagine that I've just looted something from a conflict zone. What are my options for selling it in 2021? So let's assume you are in Syria. You've just come across an object that, for the purposes of this scenario, we're going to say it's a medium-sized object, maybe some valuable pottery that's unique, and you want to make money off of it. What we're seeing now, whether you are an extremist or a farmer, you're going to get on Facebook. Pop it on one of these Facebook groups that have anywhere from 10,000 members to 500,000 members and say, how much is this worth? And by saying, how much is this worth? You're also asking who's willing to buy this from me. And so that's the way you get that material from the conflict zone that you're in to the next step. Sometimes that's still in the country. So that may be somebody on the border with Turkey may purchase it. From there, that item will cross the border into Turkey, where it's more easily laundered into Eastern Europe, places like Bulgaria. There's a lot of trafficking of antiquities from Turkey to Bulgaria. And then once it's in in the EU, it's also easier to launder the documentation, falsify documentation, and get that to a more legitimate market. The other option, which is less likely in conflict zones, but we do see this in other parts of the MENA region, is throwing it up on eBay. While eBay does not allow stolen antiquities, there's really nothing that stops someone from offering that material. And in some cases, we see dirt on an object offered as a selling point. It's kind of this idea that the item is legitimate. It's become such an indicator of legitimacy that in parts of the Middle East, we'll actually see people falsify artifacts, create forgeries, bury them, and then pull them out and video them pulling them out so that it looks like a real object is being pulled out of the ground. But ultimately, technology has really made it easy. You don't have to go through word of mouth, find your local trafficker, find your local smuggler to get material out of the country. You really just have to get online. And unfortunately, this is a very low priority, if a priority at all, for most technology companies to address. Facebook, as you may have noticed, has had some PR issues recently. They're in hot water for all sorts of stuff. 
But the way that Facebook facilitates illicit antiquities trading is almost never mentioned. And it really should be talked about more often. When it comes to Facebook's role, this platform is the largest on the planet. A third of the global population is on Facebook, giving huge amounts of power and responsibility to this multi-billion dollar conglomerate. And we have spoken to Facebook. After our report came out, Facebook reached out, which was wonderful. We were happy to see because they did not previously have any policy barring the illicit trade in antiquities, even though selling antiquities is illegal in many countries. There is no legal market like there is in the United States or the UK. But ultimately, we learned very quickly, as is the case with many of the black market trades on Facebook, that the creation of a policy does not mean enforcement of that policy. And Facebook is doing nothing to enforce. There's for, there's no proactive enforcement. So if you hear of a content moderator, for instance, those content moderators you hear about are only reviewing stuff that you as the user click report. And if you are a trafficker and you're joining a group called Egyptian Antiquities for Sale in Arabic, specifically to traffic antiquities, you're not going to be reporting anybody and they're not going to report you. So flaw number one. And then you have the issue of the fact that There's nothing that legally requires Facebook to do anything about this because there are no regulations on big tech. But ultimately, until there is some sort of either civil or legal liability, Facebook is going to continue to not do anything. On so many episodes of Power Corrupts, this theme comes up over and over again. People in another part of the world, usually a poor part of the world that's experiencing upheaval and turmoil, start doing something illicit, to make some cash. But the cash and the companies or the entities who facilitate the transactions sometimes come from the rich, democratic West. Would the illicit trade still exist without Western money and without Facebook? Sure, it would. But it's obvious that companies like Facebook have made the entire criminal enterprise much, much easier. And when it comes to Western money, there's one particularly egregious case that stands out. A story driven by greed, religious fervor, and a completely cavalier attitude towards looting that happened just a few years ago, not in some distant colonial past. I'm Jane Araf, and I'm Baghdad bureau chief for The New York Times. The story Jane is about to tell us stretches all the way from Baghdad to Oklahoma. So the Green family owns the Hobby Lobby chain, which is a huge craft store chain in the U.S. And they decided quite early on, and when I say early on, I mean years before the Museum of the Bible opened in 2017, that they were going to collect items and put them in a museum in Washington, D.C. Hobby Lobby has been embroiled in controversy for some time. In 2011, they fought the U.S. government in an effort to win the right to legally deny employees contraception. In 2020, the company came under fire again, this time for trying to insist on employees coming into work, even as the coronavirus was spreading out of control in the United States. But the company insisted that it, a hobby and craft store, was a, quote, essential business. Anyway, for our purposes here, we're focusing on one particular controversy, the Museum of the Bible which pitches itself as a fun way to explore biblical times. 
walk on the Red Sea inside a museum, explore a first century village, that sort of thing. The Museum of the Bible claims to be separate from religious endeavors, but everyone on the museum's board had to sign a faith statement, certifying that they believed that the Bible was true and accurate. And to showcase the Bible's accuracy, you needed some objects to put on display. The intent would be to inform people and to have them engage with the Bible. Now, the Greens are evangelical Christian, so also there's an element there of a literal interpretation of the Bible. And so the reason that they wanted a lot of these objects from ancient Mesopotamia was that they felt that they would provide context to the events in the Bible. I mean, some of these tablets, which are 3,000, 4,000 years old, are at the same time that events in the Bible were depicted. They went around the world, contacted dealers, bought up all this stuff, and the Green family paid for it. And then when the museum opened in 2017, the collection was largely owned by Hobby Lobby, donated to the museum. And of course, Hobby Lobby also got tax breaks in donating these things. Now, surprise, surprise, if you get into a realm that is known for illicit trading, and you're more worried about acquiring objects quickly than you are about being above board, well, things are likely to spin out of control pretty quickly. It turns out, though, even before the museum opened, a lot of these dealings were really shady. The Homeland Security intercepted thousands of items that were shipped from the United Arab Emirates in the Gulf and from Israel, and they were shipped to either Hobby Lobby or Hobby Lobby affiliates their offices in the U.S., and they were marked as tile samples, in some cases, from Turkey. So clearly obscuring their origins, because any antiquity that is going to be shipped, it has to be ascertained that it was, that it left the country legally, and that it was purchased legally. So this museum, $500 million museum in the heart of Washington, D.C., had a big problem on its hands, because these things accumulated. It wasn't just the antiquities believed to have been looted from Iraq. It was like 5,000 pieces from Egypt. They didn't know if they were looted. It was an ancient Jewish Bible from Afghanistan. And most famously, it was fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these scrolls were kind of the centerpiece of the museum until it emerged that maybe they were fake. And in fact, They were all fake. So this is a museum that had quite a lot of trouble and a lot of complete loss of credibility. They'd been taken in by a series of very expensive forgeries. And that was a problem. For a museum dedicated to showing the authenticity of the Bible, it wasn't great to have so many fake items on display. And it wasn't just the fakes. There were also real objects that were obtained illegally, in ways that likely funneled money to horrible criminal gangs, and could even have funded terrorists. In recent years, it has, after being encouraged by the U.S. government, which levied a $3 million judgment against them after the illegal importation of many of these objects, they went on a mission to clean up. Basically, they went through every item in their collection to make sure that the provenance was secure, that they knew where it came from, that they had a chain of ownership. 
And in doing that, they found out that of the thousands and thousands of items from Iraq, from ancient Mesopotamia, only one of them they could legitimately say was acquired or exported legally. The question then was whether Hobby Lobby's owners were aware that they were bankrolling so many shady illicit acquisitions or not. And while we can't say for sure, there are two damning details that we do know. First, they were warned that many of the objects that they were acquiring were notorious for being objects that were looted and tied to illicit antiquities trafficking. And then, well, there's also this second detail that's tied to the head honcho of Hobby Lobby itself. In one of the complaints from the Justice Department, they note that Steve Green himself brought in a Bible. He was stopped by customs returning to the United States with a Bible worth a million dollars that he had not declared. He said he didn't know it needed to be declared, didn't know it needed customs forms. So, so make of that what you will. The controversy is continuing to this day as Hobby Lobby and the Museum of the Bible continue to try to atone for facilitating looting and paying cash to some awful people who got rich stealing a country's heritage. So they ended up returning more than 13,000 items to the Iraqi government. So why does all of this matter? Sure, there's the intrigue of the Chinese art heists, with some sophisticated thieves repelling from glass ceilings and getting away in speedboats. And then there's the unsavory role played by Westerners, from Facebook to Hobby Lobby, when it comes to empowering criminal gangs and terrorists who work in the illicit antiquities trade. But there's something deeper, something intangible, something you can't put a price tag on. And to explore that angle, I spoke to a man who's in charge of the India Pride Project, an organization that's devoted to helping India recover its stolen cultural artifacts. When I got on the phone with him, I have to admit I did that cringy thing that many of us do when we come across a name that we're unfamiliar with. I apologized and said his name was unfamiliar to me, and I asked him to pronounce it for me so I wouldn't butcher it. And to his credit, he took it in stride, flipping it back on me, which I loved. Oh, no, that's fine. We feel the same about you guys. <laughs> Mr. Brian. <laughs> yeah, so the name is Anurag Saxena, and um, I'm the founder of India Pride Project. Anurag told me that India has been looted for centuries, but that the problem is still ongoing. Broadly, there are three phases of looting of Indian antiquities. And here I'd like to differentiate between antiquities and faith objects because each of them have a very different significance from the indigenous community it was taken from. But having said that, there is pre-British or pre-colonial era looting, there is colonial era looting, and then post-independence or post-colonial. In terms of numbers, back in 1989, UNESCO came out with a report that India has lost 50,000 antiquities in the matter of one decade. So here we're really talking of incredibly high numbers and for the illicit market that places a value on them, we're talking of uh, incredibly high values. But when I asked him how much these items were worth, he rejected the premise of that question. I don't want this to be a numbers or a dollar issue. 
because for a family for a community for a city that's lost its heritage even one is too much as an example would you be okay if i only took the liberty bell away from the us right you can't then say that hey it's just one object so let it pass right so it really isn't about the numbers as much as it is about the significance of these heritage objects of especially faith objects to communities i took his point and he's right an individual artifact can have tremendous value on the black market but putting a price tag on its value to a country or a religious community is often impossible and he says despite that truth not enough people are taking these thefts seriously i call it the james bond fallacy right which is a crime is not really understood to be a crime unless you have a james bond villain that does it and unfortunately james bond villains have done everything but steal heritage now if i were a terrorist or any kind of criminal and let's say i had no moral compass at all and i needed to make 5 million dollars i really have three options today i could either smuggle in two cases of cocaine through heathrow or i could kidnap 250 underage girls from eastern europe and push them into the flesh trade or i could steal away a piece of heritage and sell it through the illicit market and that's precisely what has been happening especially over the last decade you know so from a terrorist point of view from somebody that has no moral compass heritage is very easy target it's it's low hanging fruit to play devil's advocate i asked anurag What do you think about the claim that some westerners have made over the centuries that the looting of these sites was a way to keep them safe? For example, the Ottomans used the Parthenon, a building of enormous cultural value, as a place to store gunpowder during a siege in 1687. The whole thing blew up, leaving the Parthenon a ruin. That event is sometimes used by people to say, "Hey, look, we're just looting these items for safekeeping." in a museum that won't get blown up our heritage was fine it was doing perfectly well and it was safe till the colonizers came in in the first place right so i think it's a very wilted argument to say that we stole away stuff from you so we could protect it from other people that might steal it away from you b it is a very very condescending and elitist argument it's almost remnant of colonization for someone to come in and say hey listen we can do better with taking care of your stuff than you can or for that matter we can do better than you can at anything else and it's sad that western museums continue to hang on to you know the colonization of the mind as i call it where they remain elitist and they're comfortable talking you down about your own heritage you know it just doesn't fly and he says some of these museums aren't properly acknowledging the origins of some of the items in their collections at least in terms of how they were acquired and brought into the museum at the risk of sounding facetious denial is not just the name of a river it's an attitude as well and sadly most western museums especially british museums are in denial a about how they got these objects in the first place and the bloodshed and and the gruesome conditions in which these objects were brought to them But for Anurag and his NGO, it's not enough for acknowledgments. It's time to return the objects, and that means starting to make it normal for these items to be repatriated. I mean, we're at a stage where we are very keen on setting precedents. 
once that happens, once it becomes acceptable, once we find a common uh, coalition around the idea that history belongs to its geography, after that, it's just an avalanche. So I put this point to the others. What would that so-called avalanche mean? And why is it important? Heritage helps people, you know, understand their identities. And particularly in these parts of the Middle East where we see sectarian conflict or political conflict, heritage is one of the most important unifiers for people to know that they are all from the same people. You know, on a day-to-day basis, Iraqis generally don't care, I've got to say. (laughs) They've got lots to deal with here. They've got no electricity most of the time. They've got bad water. They've got bad politicians. There's still violence. So the return of the antiquities is not number one on their list, but still, it was theirs, most of them feel, and they want it back. No matter what religion you are in Iraq, Almost every Iraqi I know has a very deep connection with ancient Mesopotamia in the fact that they are incredibly proud that this was the land where writing was invented, where there was, you know, the first rule of law encoded, the Hammurabi Code, where astronomy was developed. You know, this was the center of the known world at the time, the center of the Islamic world, and so many things sprung up here. And they're really proud of it, and, and they feel very protective of it. And the flip side of that is is they're very angry at, at all the looting that's been done, at all the cultural damage that's been done to their country. And people want this stuff back for very understandable reasons. So now it's your turn to decide. Next time you go to a museum, think a little bit harder about this question. Is that item where it should be? If not, what should be done to fix it? And next time you log onto Facebook, be just a little bit more aware that not everyone on there is liking cat photos and chatting to friends. Some people on the site are selling stolen items that rob people of their heritage, that rob them of their identity and their history. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode thought-provoking, please rate and review Power Corrupts wherever you listen to podcasts or post about us on social media. It really helps others find out about the show. And please consider supporting our work by buying a book that will likely make you see the world a little bit differently. Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which you can pick up wherever you buy books. This episode was written and narrated by me, Brian Kloss. The executive producer was George McDonough, who also did the sound editing. The Power Corrupts theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. And a special thanks to Karen Tan and Alicia Monsefi-Poor, who helped me research this episode. Goodbye for now. 